1: right? And mm-hmm. so she's there at the Pride Parade. There's floats with like
2: men in skimpy underwear. This is Cindy Wong Brandt. She's talking about going to a Pride Parade in Taiwan with her mom.
1: And <laughs> she's videoing them and they're waving at her and yeah it was such it was such a great moment.
2: Um, <laughs> I think she made it onto the news with a picture of that. I'm Debra Lee and this is Kaleidoscope. Today I interview Cindy Wong Brandt. Cindy comes from a deep evangelical background. I'm talking Wheaton College, Fuller Seminary, the whole missionary thing. In other words, she's been hella committed. But that commitment began to unravel in her young adult years. It actually started when she had kids. At first, she followed the script. She taught conservative Christian values to convert her children. But doing this set off a crisis of faith. To Cindy, it felt fundamentally wrong to indoctrinate young minds this way. So she changed course and began deprogramming from fundamentalist parenting culture. This eventually led her to start a Facebook group in the same spirit, and she quickly realized that among parents, there was a serious hunger for this. Her group, which is called Raising Children Unfundamentalists, now has more than 11,000 members. We're going to return to all this parenting stuff later in the interview but first we're gonna get back to the pride parade because here another pivotal faith shifting thing happens cindy and her mom go to the pride parade to support cindy's trans brother and then cindy makes a tiny decision that would put so much at risk including her job at a christian school and some significant relationships here's cindy at the
1: parade Um, my friend who is an activist, she came up to me with a rainbow ribbon. And Mm -hmm. so I loved it. And I put it in my hair and took a lot of care into making it look nice, because I like pretty things. And (laughs) I made my brother take a really good picture of it. And you know, as with all pictures, I was like, okay, take it again. That one wasn't good. And you know, we (laughs) Stopped the parade for a little bit to make sure I got the best selfie that I could. (laughs) And I guess there was maybe a small part of me that was afraid because I was still working at my conservative evangelical school. Mm -hmm. So then maybe a week after I had posted that, I was called into the principal's office like a little kid. (laughs) And um, yeah, it was the superintendent of my school and the principal. And they're both my superiors, obviously. And they sat me down in the principal's office and they just said that they wanted to remind me of the standards of Christian conduct or whatever that's part of the school policy Mm -hmm. is essentially anti-gay. Like they affirm the biblical definition of marriage. And so they said, we don't want you posting that kind of stuff on Facebook. And I argue my case. Um, I said I wasn't posting as an employee at the school. Mm -hmm. And it's also my personal private Facebook. And then a few days later, he emailed me and said that, yes, he's decided. Yes, it does violate it. And he wants me to stop doing that. Hmm. And so my tenure at that school is very vexed because Being back at a school where I was raised conservative evangelical was really tough for my faith shifting. Yeah. (laughs) Because it brought me face to face with the exact theology and environment that I was starting to reject. Mm -hmm. But I tried really hard to stay there because, well, because it's part of who I am. I say it's kind of like my Chinese identity. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's who I am. It's what shaped me. And I don't know that I can just shrug it off like a coat, you know? And I felt like it was important for me to humanize the members of this community, even though I disagree with them. And being working there was a really good way to do that because I know my coworkers. I saw them every day. I I know their families. And I love them. Um, And so... I tried to be in a place that was difficult for me, but it came to a head, right? I could no longer maintain that tension of being fully who I am and exist in that community. Um, And even though they didn't officially fire me, they were saying, if you want to stay here, then you can't be who you are. That was what I heard. And I said, okay, then I'm, then I resigned. So I quit my job. Was it hard to do? Yes. I basically was squeezed out and, um, and just feeling the pain of that, feeling the pain. And then shortly after that, Donald Trump got elected, and that didn't help things. But it's just this wholesale rejection of by the community that raised you, it's, it's hard to take. And I didn't, I didn't want to be anywhere near people in that community for a while, which is really hard because my kids still go there. But for the most part, people have been respectful of them. Although just a few weeks ago, my daughter did tell me that someone at her school asked her, so do you believe everything your mom believes? (laughs) You know, I feel like I know where that question comes from, is that they're hearing things that, oh, you know, maybe the mom is a heretic or liberal but my daughter held her own. She, I was proud of her. And this is a good uh, Unfundamentalist Parenting moment too because what she said in response, she's like, I will decide what I want to believe. That's what she said to her friend. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I was so worried about that kind of attack, which I kind of felt like it was an attack even though it was just from a kid. I didn't know
2: how she would handle it and she handled it perfectly. Was there ever someone who embodied raising children on fundamentalists that was a model to you when you were starting out on this journey?
1: So a couple of years ago, um, a friend texted me and told me that her friend is in the same town that I'm in and that her husband had just gotten a cancer diagnosis and was in the ICU. And was there any way that I could go visit her and just lend her support because she's here all by herself and she's American. And so I ended up meeting her and trying to be a friend to her and walk her through just a really severe crisis because her husband ended up dying Mm. in Taiwan, in a foreign land. Yeah, Mm. I was with her when he passed away. But what had happened was, you know, they were doing everything in the hospital. They were doing everything they could to try to save his life. But there was a point where she had to decide to stop the intervention. Um, and by then, her 16-year-old son had flown over from America to to be here um, in Taiwan with them. And so the night before that they were going to stop the intervention, knowing that he would die... Um, she had to tell him and so i was with her and she's agnostic um, rick her husband who died was atheist mm-hmm. and so it was the first time that i had been in such a life and death situation With people who are not Christian evangelical Christian the world that I came from right so it was I mean I hate to say fascinating because obviously it's a really tragic story for my friend but it was very interesting for me to observe that from my perspective and see how do people deal with parenting through death and loss and crisis without the kind of faith that I had you know, what script, you know, is she having to use? Because the only script I know is what I know.
2: Right. So if it was your script, like, what would someone in your script say in that moment? Like the, the, the older fundamentalist script? I mean, they would
1: assume that, you know, the person who was dying was going to a better place with Jesus. And that would be the comfort that you bring. It's like, yes, this is really sad and hard, but he's in a better place and we'll see him again. And what was their script, your friends? They did not believe that there was a heaven, and they didn't think there was guarantee that they would see her husband and, and dad ever again, that this was the end. What did she say to her son? She explained all the facts of what had happened with the medical intervention, what is going on, and she explained why she is making the decision that she is making now, and she just said, I know this is really shitty, and she just held him, mm-hmm. and I was there and I held him too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it was deeply painful, but yeah, it was. I felt honored or humbled to be there in that moment because it was sacred to mm-hmm. me, and made me realize that it's possible to have a different script. Yeah. So yeah, that's left a very deep impression on me, and I tell my friend all the time. I just you know, after that, it's like you are an amazing mother. Um, I can't imagine going through that with the kind of poise that she had, um, you know, enduring the pain herself. And um, But then she pulled herself together and yet was not afraid to be vulnerable with her emotions. And that was, for me, revolutionary because I don't think that I grew up in an environment that handled emotions in a healthy way. So, What do you mean by that? I think that a lot of conservative Christian culture tended to bury feelings so even this whole thing of oh you don't be so sad you know grandpa's in heaven like Mm -hmm. even that i feel like um, invalidates some of the grieving and so conservative evangelicals don't make enough space for genuine grief um, Mm -hmm. um,
2: and times of pain and so yeah and i'm not trying to put like a positive spin on this terrible thing that happened Mm -hmm. to your friend but um, right. if we were to, you know, draw any kind of lesson from it, it's like, I think there's a lot of pressure on parents to have all the answers for their children. Yes. And it's yes. like this example is really liberating because it's like, you don't have to be the answer book for your children. You can be a human yeah. and you can grieve with yes. them and hold them and just like yes. experience the pain and the joy of life with them. Yes. Yes. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Stick around to hear what happens next. Oh, hey there. Didn't notice you. Yes, it's still a break, but here I am again talking to you. I wanted to let you know that this beautiful spot is where you can place your ad. It can be for anything. Your podcast, your business your dating profile here's the thing we need funding to keep kaleidoscope alive for a second season so become a sponsor or drop us some cash in our patreon account look up kscope pod every bit counts and we so appreciate your support thank you thank you so much Welcome back. Let's return to my conversation with Cindy. Here, we're talking more about her Facebook group, Raising Children on Fundamentalist. I asked her about the racial dynamics and what she's learned as a woman of color leading this community. The race conversation
1: has been the most difficult one. It's been the most stubborn needle to move in my group because we also talk about LGBT um, equality. We talk about gender equality and those have been a lot easier to inspire and say, listen, if we can change the way we parent, we can change the culture and we can make the world more kind for our kids. That's the the rallying call mm-hmm. in RCU. But the race one, yeah, that's it's been so hard and I've had to block people. I hardly ever block people, but that's the one I've had to block people over because of some of the white fragility that happens. And I just keep trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were there any
2: um, particular conversations about anti-racist parenting that stood out to you? There's one
1: that repeatedly comes up and it's become so emotionally draining for me that I have not hosted a conversation on it for a while and it's Dr. Seuss. Because Mm. Dr. Seuss is obviously a very well-known author and such a staple in so many of our own childhood and something that parents want to give to their kids but he was also very racist and he drew a lot of cartoons that were propaganda against Japanese people there's several instances of his racist art that's been talked about in many places and whenever I bring that up people get offended um, and they'll defend him and say that oh it doesn't matter he did so much good think about the Lorax (laughs) which I like the Lorax too, but we can hold these things in tension. We can point out the problematic things and discern for ourselves whether or not this person's art is still worth consuming. And so I just want to create space for those conversations, but it's yeah, it's, it's very hard because people aren't willing to go there. Um, they're not willing to attack their faves. So that is the Dr. Seuss mm-hmm. issue. I, if people bring that up, I just don't even host it anymore because I'm tired. <laughs> right. Can you tell me about a time when your kids have taught you something about parenting? Back then, I was not privy to some of these public conversations about consent and also about the gender binary. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I felt like I had a baby boy, everyone needs to know that he's a boy and I need to keep his hair short. And so that's what I'm going to do. And so as soon as his hair grew longer than his ears, I had a cut and I took him in. He was only a baby because he had a lot of hair Mm -hmm. and he screamed bloody murder, just screamed. It was so terrible in every way for the hair person, for me and for him. And so it boggles my mind that I kept doing it. Hmm. Um, I kept keeping his hair short you know, all throughout his baby and toddlerhood, and even now, he's 12 years old, and he doesn't scream bloody murder anymore, but he has words, and he tells me, he's like, Mom, I feel anxiety when I have to go in there, and I have to have someone, you know, cut so close to my face, and I have to wear this cape with, you know, the string chokes my throat, and I don't like it, and you know, this is some remorse that I have and regret about a lot of things, but this is one example of why didn't I listen? Why didn't I listen to those screams? It should have been okay for me to just let his hair grow out or come to some kind of consensus with him that didn't uh, put him through such trial
2: yeah. at such a young age.
1: Yeah. So, yeah.
2: I mean, I think that's such a big challenge with being a parent because you know I have I have a three-year-old and mm-hmm. he screams bloody murder for so many things though. <laughs> like sometimes like right and it's like they're good there are things that are good for him that he needs <laughs> like like yes you need to sit in your car seat yet you need to be buckled in mm-hmm. I'm sorry like this is not negotiable right. Um, right so it's like how do you differentiate between I mean, I guess getting a haircut, like, you're not going to, like, get hurt if you don't get a haircut. But I think that's, like, one of the hard things, like, as a parent. Like, when you're in the thick of it and you're, like, sleep-deprived and you have someone screaming in your face and you have piles of dirty dishes and laundry and all this stuff going on. It's, like, sometimes it's, like, you just want it to be easier and you just want things to, like, click into place. It's, like, just cut your hair. Let's move on. Like, how do you differentiate between, like you know, a well, violation and just like,
1: uh, like parenting? I don't think it's very clear sometimes, especially in those younger years where there's a lot of tantrums yeah. um, from both the child and the parent. Yeah, I think it's the posture that matters, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's how much are you willing to recognize your child as a human being mm-hmm. instead of as this creature or subhuman who has these weird habits that you just need to tame
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right yeah I think sometimes I mean it sounds horrible to say out loud but I think that's how some parents think like I just want I just want this to go my way without recognizing the dignity and the humanity of this person that is in front of you
2: yeah yeah I am going to shift gears how do you bring your Taiwanese part of your identity into your parenting and into the way you engage with these issues publicly? You know, when you first start out writing, you write
1: in the voice of other people that you see. And all that I saw were other white people Mm -hmm. writing. And so I think that's what I fell into. And I also learned to cater to a white audience, which I've had practice doing my entire life. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't hard for me. And so I know that my audience is largely white, and I don't know what to do about that except for to try to be more fully myself as much as I can I don't but it's a process as you know when you've assimilated to de-assimilate or maybe a better way to say it is to assert my own unique cultural and ethnic and racial identity which I'm still learning how to do that
2: You know, ever since we did this interview, I've been thinking about what Cindy said about how she's just now learning to assert her unique cultural identity. It's something that I've been in the process of doing as well for a really long time. Like Cindy was saying, I've seen how after decades of assimilating, I've lost parts of myself. And when I do think about my identity, it's often within the framework of resistance or the perspective I bring as an outsider. And of course, that is really valuable. But I also don't want to define our communities only in relation to dominant culture. And so when I'm feeling erased or disconnected from my heritage, I do this little practice. It's super simple. I just remember. I remember my friends and how we'd run through Taipei fields, screaming, (laughs) and then we'd turn and watch the fireworks that we lit explode against the night sky. Or I think about my parents forging a new life in America and how they so quickly became the socialites of the Taiwanese and Cantonese communities in Chicago. I remember going to Lunar New Year banquet hall parties and how the teens would steal away to some side room with a DJ and some pretty sick break dancing. I remember discovering Wang Kar Wai films and reading David Henry Huang and Lee Young Lee in college. I think about the present and how I've learned to cook my favorite Cantonese dishes and how I've been learning about the history and spirituality of my ancestors and how today I'm writing a new story for myself. Erin and I didn't have time to record a Pastor in Residence segment this week, but I did call her to get her thoughts, and I shared all this with her. And she said, you know, that's a really healthy way to move through the world, continuing to celebrate who you are instead of just being in opposition to everything around you. Being in opposition all the time is exhausting, and it doesn't give you the freedom to define yourself and forge your identity. And this freedom is something that we wish for all Kaleidoscope listeners. That's it for this episode, folks. Thank you so much. Kaleidoscope is produced by Annie Nguyen with amazing support by co-founder Aaron James Brown. I'm your host, Deborah John Lee. You can find out more about the show at kscopepod.com. Our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are all at Pod. Thanks to the BTS Center for funding Season 1. If you're into the show, please consider supporting us. Our Patreon account is Pod. Or use the Radio Public app, where we get some coins for each listen. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps, too. All right. See you next episode. In the meantime, let the world see you. When they do, they'll never oh, be hey the again. same. Quick reminder, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're going to start featuring reviews on the show. Here's a snippet from the user ETC1401.
1: Five stars. I love this
2: <laughs> That's right. Leave us a review and my little one might read it for the show.
1: I, I can't do that because I'm busy.
2: <laughs> busy. <laughs> Are you working? Busy working? Okay. I will see if I can persuade him to come back. Until next time.